Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Streets Ahead, your podcast for all things active travel, walking, cycling, other things that are active and involve travel. You can tell that I'm not reading a script on this particular episode of Streets Ahead because we thought we'd diverge and we're going to call this episode the pod without portfolio, Laura, aren't we? And you've come up with a brilliant explanation as to how that might work, a metaphor, if you like. Yeah, we're a pod without portfolio and also without a home today because we're sitting on the banks of the Thames. I was saying that we're like an empty crisp packet drifting on the Thames. Which I think is brilliant. It's going to be but that But at least structured. we're together. Yeah, we are, uh, we are recording a podcast um, in face, in person, on the banks of the River Thames. We are between London Bridge and that one there, which Charing is... Cro- oh, well, is no, that that's Charing? Cannon no. Street. Cannon Street. That's oh, the God. railway bridge that goes into Cannon Street. And I don't know what the bridge is called, Cannon actually. Cannon Street Bridge, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> that, would, that would make sense. And it's a long time since we've last podded. So I'll start with you, Adam. What's been happening in your life? Went to the south of France. That was nice. So it took some time. I've never been to Cannes. Yeah, it's a bit strange. There's designer shops everywhere and everyone just goes up and down in supercars. So you kind of look at them and stuff. Sort of did that. But actually, it was very nice. It was um, not not that bit, but it's got a lovely old town. It's got all, you know, you just go slightly off the beaten track and it's lovely. So um, did that, sat on a beach for a bit. That was Very nice. Laura, what have you been up to? I've been cycling bits of the NCN, the National Cycle Network. Oh, yes. Now, can you tell us why? Do you think? Yeah, so I'm writing a book. That's good. Very well done. Yes, very good. Which is very exciting, and I'm going to be writing about the National Cycle Network as it is, as it could be, as it should be. What it is, what it means philosophically for the country. Just going to ride it. I'm just going to ride around. Well, you're (laughs) you're not just writing it. You're riding it. I'm riding it. Riding it and then writing it. Riding and then writing. Writing and riding. That's technical. That's very difficult. But I could maybe do a voice note. No, you need your hands on the handlebars. Yeah, hands-free only. Yeah, so I've been cycling around the south-east. I've done from about Canterbury to Brighton, around that corner. It's very nice. I would like to ask you what on earth the National Cycle Route is. I mean, National Cycle Network is, because I should know, really. If I don't know, (laughs) what hope is there for mankind? I mean, I ride my bike everywhere, don't have a car, 
and I work in cycling and I don't really know what the National Cycle Network is. Because here's the thing. We, me and my family, we were getting annoyed about this the other day. We've often talked about Quiet Way 1 in London, mm-hmm. yeah, mm. which is um, one of the better routes, yeah. better designed routes. And Best I use of it, all the Quiet I've Ways, just probably. literally used it now to come up here. But they've, uh, it's no longer called Quiet Way 1. All no. the bits that say Q1 on the tarmac have been painted over. So it's C. called CS. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's just C. C. C, I think, isn't it? Yeah, it's no not, nothing CS anymore. It's no not allowed to call it super because it sounds too sporty. So, is, I d- yeah. so where's the coherence in all of this? And oh, how I does that know. interlock with the NCN? And what happened to quiet ways? Why can't you say super, cycle super <laughs> highways? What does C stand for? And why isn't it all coherent? Yeah. If, 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 if <laughs> the road network was this incoherent... Well, it, it could never be, could it? Because mm. it just wouldn't function. But it just seems so piecemeal and ridiculous. And I'm, it sounds yeah. like I'm blaming you. Yeah, I know. It's going to be my fault now. It's Sustrans fault at the moment. But yeah, it's a kind of tricky one. Kind of owned by goodness knows how many landowners up and down the country or councils. And then Sustrans tries to manage it best it can. But I think it's a bit like herding cats. Yeah. It's like councils of London or Manchester. Some of them want cycle stuff and are happy to give over road space. And then some aren't. But then there's the issue of funding. And so what you end up with is a bit like sort of London, but worse, writ large. There are some great bits. I've been cycling on some really nice bits, like wide, smooth, little cycle paths. But then you get the kind of go to a roundabout and then it just suddenly diverts you onto a pavement with almost no warning. You have to go like three sides of a roundabout. Yeah, but you like almost dodgy... answer a question I yeah. haven't asked. Mm. Because I'm not... So we could talk forever. What is we could, it? We could, yeah. do, we could do an entire series on how bad the actual roots are. Yeah. That's what Laura's book's going to be. <laughs> and occasionally good. To, to well, I think the... But, yeah, but I think... my starting point is the simple thing of numbering it? it correctly. Yeah. Oh, you know, okay, numbering numbers, it, yeah. Numbering it so it makes sense. So I think yeah. if you know... NCNs are numbered. So I live in a place where there's an NCN 52 and you can obviously go and look at the maps and, and they are... But they're numbered in a they way are that's numbered, like... But not in a... The NCN 1 goes from Dover to like sure. Inverness yes. I know it's but insane. then again but roads as well I was yeah. reading about the other day that roads are numbered in a particular way and, and I can't remember what the way is but it's the if, you, if it's A1 A2 A3 it's like the postcodes and phone numbers they are done in a methodical way but of course people just come to know them as oh it's the A406 you know and yeah. that doesn't mean anything to anyone either unless yeah. you, like you look A406 it up so. like a tributary of an A4 or something is it does it work like that because like postcodes yeah it might do that yeah, yeah that makes sense but I think, I think bus that, numbers are probably really not weird as well aren't they yeah. that's another subject yeah but that's the thing like, the numbers <laughs> only become recognisable yeah. when you know what they are yeah. and the cycleway the cycle superhighway that's not the superhighway and the quietways which are no longer Quietways. So, what are we left um, with in uh, London? Do you know? I know, they're, I know they're, just, they're just cycleways. They're, they're C for cycleways. C's, C for yeah. cycleways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I'll leave this alone in a second because yeah. I'm, I'm getting irritated by it. But the national, the NCN network, your N, your N52 and your N1 yeah. and your N13, <laughs> do they run through London as well? Are there also Ns in London? Yeah, yeah London London has some uh, NCNs. The NCN1 goes through London. It goes near me on like, on the um, Lee River. I suppose it has to come through um, London if it's going from Kent to Inverness. Yeah. I guess maybe the numbering doesn't matter so much I'm just thinking about Matters buses you me. know you need to get the 25 or whatever you know you need to take the A1 to wherever yeah. in the Netherlands they have the Knoepointen the number point system which confused me at first I was mm. when I was cycling around the Netherlands a few years ago it's like a kind of weird dot to dot but the, dot, the numbers aren't necessarily right. consecutive so mm. you might need to go like left at 46 and then there might be a 15 that you need to turn right at and yeah. you kind of you can kind of write the numbers down this is what I did and yeah follow it but it doesn't I mean the numbers don't necessarily 
matter but mm. just the fact that they're there to help you navigate so yeah. i guess it kind of does make sense and so maybe um suppose so. maybe as the network gets because it, it's it's not a very dense network yeah the ncn yeah uh, so yeah. maybe as it gets denser maybe they'll use my idea they have like ncn1 and they have, have like little ncn1 something 1.2s one one and 1.3s <laughs> yeah i quite yeah. like that yeah. yeah um i'll tell you what does area. work well for but again it requires a precedent for it to work and and that's in paris where you know, Paris has had a huge uptick in cycling and some of it, the infrastructure is really good, some of it's not so good. One of the theories that I have about why it's doing so well is that the first pandemic routes that they built during coronavirus and the first lockdown matched the tube lines, the metro lines. So the routes on the street oh, became the smart. metro that lines. so smart. So they're all the same colour on the street, you know, they're all the same signage. So people who obviously take that the metro every so day, you know, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, so I think obviously that, that, that was, that was smart and that's, um, that's worked, worked really well. There was a plan to do that in London many years ago, maybe like 2012 or 13. I think one of the suggestions was to have a sort of circle line. And I remember trying to ride some of these routes. And of course, if you're going on the circle line, you're going on Euston Road and who knows what to do with Euston Road. But that was a kind of, vague idea but i don't know why it never happened maybe some bits are just too difficult yeah it's a good idea because it's a network that people know and they can just follow it above ground but it's interesting i think people care quite deeply about it when i used to write a lot for road cc whenever we wrote about barriers on cycle routes people used to pile in in Mm. that tens and tens of people would pile in on the conversation and um what do we need like better cycle routes and it's not just in urban areas but rural areas and some town a lot of towns and villages are sort of 10 20 minutes apart by cycle but there's no real way of doing that yeah the town nearest to the one i grew up in i only realized a couple of years ago that you could cycle there in about 20 minutes but there's a kind of b road that wasn't a road it's quite big you just wouldn't unless you're quite you know quite confident you wouldn't just wouldn't cycle on it so or if you had a road bike you'd find that some of that route was muddy or something or or kind of you know Mm. so yeah the surface is really rough grippy yeah Yeah. um, one thing that will be really like really interesting i'm looking forward to reading about when your book comes out is those sort of more rural communities and and kind of like the travel aspect of it as well because a lot of people who are in myself included sometimes who are you know involved in cycling advocacy and and active travel often think about it from an urban point of view and and actually where i live is on the ncn and where my wife used to work you know was at the other side of the ncn and she used to ride down the ncn every day yeah and and you know we're not in a massively built up area and it's just really those kind of places are forgotten sometimes and we have to remember that people do want to cycle and walk in those areas and they do want to do it safely it might not they might not be able to afford or they might not even be able to warrant yeah. the cycle super highway style stuff but they need something yeah and it needs to be good enough for people and everyone to feel yeah. like they can use it a lot of low incomes in rural areas a lot of car dependency when i was growing up in the countryside i mean you just had to learn to drive because the buses were so crappy they're even worse now so yeah you basically got to 17 learn to drive or you were stuck or you take just hours to get everywhere or we hitchhiked <laughs> yeah i was speaking to someone um in wales the Active Travel Commissioner for Wales, Daffod, Daffod Tristan, I should say, who was talking about having a interurban cycleway between Cardiff and Newport. Oh, yeah? Yeah, which I think is a brilliant idea. I mean, that's two cities that are, well, according to the map, 12.8 miles. miles. Yeah, yeah like a little bit 13 more, yeah. miles apart. That's doable for lots of people, not yeah, for everyone. Yeah, on an e-bike, that's an e-bike, less than an hour. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so interurban high-speed cycleway. 
I remember yeah. being in um, Velo City in 2017 and Arnhem Nijmegen and uh, there's like an in, they had like a high speed Arnhem kind of Nijmegen. super yeah, yeah super highway between those yeah. two and we went out to They're the uh, Museum of Dutch Life yeah. in the eve and then came back in the evening it was just wonderful yeah. and it's quite a fair old way but it's just really really nice actually yeah. just on a heavy Dutch bike just summer evening it was yeah. really really nice and all the junctions were really good and it's totally possible 2016 Giro d'Italia stage 2 and stage 3 stage 2 was Nijmegen, Arnhem to Nijmegen and stage three was Nijmegen to Arnhem. Yeah, yeah I've been to Arnhem. Very, very nice. In that yeah. part of the Netherlands, it's called the Gelderland, isn't it? Uh-huh. Yes, Gelderland. Well, well it's, yeah, yeah, it's a G. Yeah, but yeah. I pronounce it properly. It's Gelderland. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I've just got to out-pronounce it, the cycling commentator. <laughs> Laura, what's the title of the book? We don't know yet. I'm yeah. not very good at titles. No, nor am I. I've, written, I've just published my sixth book, and it's the first time I've ever got a title over yeah. the line. Remind me what it's called. Cool. <laughs> oh, thank you, Laura. Thank oh, this you. is so professional. It's called Square Peg, Round Ball, Football TV and oh. Me, and it has nothing to do with active travel. Ah. But it's a bit of a laugh. Anyway, just to say good luck with naming the title, because that's thank yeah, you. my sixth attempt. That's oh the first God. title I've actually got got over the line. Did yeah. did the other people so your editors would name it for you or the publishers would name yeah, it for you? Yeah, they'd just say, yeah, that's a stupid title. We'll, we'll call it this, you know, and you yeah. just have to go along with it. What about how I won the yellow jumper? Was that? No, nah, my editor came up with that. Oh, yeah, I wanted that's to call a good it something title. really pompous. Oh, really? And he just said, no, I think you just need a funny joke, and we'll put <laughs> a cartoonish picture of you on the front cover. Yeah, and that was he that. was right. I reckon. <laughs> Louis Theroux didn't come up with his book title. He's got to get through this. That was someone else. No, that would be absolutely. A focus group in the publishers <laughs> who come up with that, yeah. But it kind of works, doesn't it? Yeah, it's um, good. Oh, well, good luck with that. Now, you've Thank also you. got some family news of, of yeah. sorts, haven't you? What's that? Yeah, so um, there's a new housing development in my hometown, and some local people got together and suggested that they name one of the streets after my late dad. Uh, so it's going to be it's called lovely. Laker Close. Yeah, oh, that's so very good. sweet, yeah. What did you... Not everyone gets a street name I know. What, how's your dad got himself a street so name? So he was a brewer. He had a brewery, which no is way. still going, uh, called Exmoor Ales. Not in the family anymore. Hasn't been for some time. So he did that, and he ran a beer festival, beer and folk music festival, and he was big in the kind of beer campaigning, brewery campaigning industry. He's founded Seba Southwest, the Small Independent Brewers Association, just a big kind of character, big cheerleader for my extremely tiny hometown, <laughs> always promoting local businesses, and yeah, it was just very so kind of local gregarious. Of, uh, yeah, yeah <laughs> kind man, of, yeah. An important figure in the community, Always like very Adam. scruffy. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, sort of cut-off jeans shorts and um, high-tech silver shadows in various states of decay, but um, yeah, he was, he was quite well loved. Yeah, it's oh, very, very sweet. You, Me and my sister are delighted. Are yeah. able to... Um, influence the design of the street can you make sure no. it's designed to lay Do traffic you know, I'd love to I'd love to it's going to be a dual carriageway isn't it <laughs> it's off a roundabout oh. um, <laughs> pavement parking everywhere road that goes to the, it's quite a busy road but um, yeah it's very sweet anyway we're, we're dead chuffed excellent so excellent it's nice what's been happening in kind of politically Adam and in the world of policy and stuff I, I noticed a story that I didn't really read I paid cursory attention to that Grant Chaps was saying stuff about e-scooters, saying, we've got to get the grips for this, probably find some way of regulating it a little bit. Is that Was there much more to it than that? Or Yeah, well, we don't exactly um, know. The government and, and all governments tend to give hints about where they're going with legislation. And, and there's the Queen's speech upcoming where, where their kind of agenda will be set. And yeah, they're trailing e-scooters as something that both they want to get tough on, I think, but also that they want to try and enable the use of is what it sounds like so it sounds like quite a sensible 
sort of pragmatic way to do it. And the, the Daily Mail article that, that I, I read does seem to take the leap from what he said in a select committee that they are considering legalising private e-scooters in the upcoming Queen's speech. Grant Shapps did also talk about during that geofencing technology. So it's unclear whether, you know, the private e-scooters now are like lots of mode of transport, including cars, are a free-for-all. They don't, they're not geofenced. You can ride them wherever you like and you have to abide by the law. And, and as we know, not all road users, regardless of what mode of transport they use, follow the law. But what we're seeing is that they're suggesting potentially that get the legislation new private e-scooters might need to be controlled in some way speed limited geofence potentially i think we're the only country like one of the only countries in the world that don't haven't legalized them yet but i wonder if at the same time if they're talking about geofencing if we could just geofence cars so they don't go on pavements or well quite yeah Uh, and i think that technology you know actually joking apart could be an interesting could be this is why i said all the road users thing Mm. because the dissonance is really interesting you hear because when you listen and you've just came halfway through the conversation you'd be listening to them speak and you kind of be going what are they talking about? Because they're talking about these, you know, dangerous vehicles that could be, you know, <laughs> used inappropriately, used in crime. Mm. You know, they, they, some of them can go over the speed limit yeah. uh, and things like that. You're going, you're car, cars, it's cars, <laughs> isn't it? Uh, and they go, no, it's e-scooters. It's, it's such new technology and they haven't been around for very long at all and the growth has been so fast. So I, sp- I suppose it's too early for any evidence base to kind of emerge about whether statistically mile for mile, vehicle for vehicle, pound for pound or whatever, they are more dangerous than... Cars or bicycles or they're, any other... They're more dangerous than bicycles. They're about they motorbikes kind of level, aren't yes. they? I think and is that because the there's more pavement hopping and kind of... It's mainly the theory, and again, mm. the data's at the early parts of it, but bicycles are re- they're really good, bicycles. They're, they've invented really well. They've got big wheels and often chunky tires and things like that. No, I've got tiny wheels. Yeah, tiny wheels, um, little clown car, <laughs> But... But normally, and joking aside, that's the that's the issue. It's the wheels of of scooters. So most of the data, because the US have been had more trips and done it earlier, um, the data seems to suggest that they are you know more like inverted commas accident prone. But usually, it's not riders going into pedestrians or riders go you know it's riders being hit by cars. It's riders hurting themselves ultimately so the theory goes with the small wheels and them not being so stable a lot of the early ones were designed as almost toys yeah and they go down a pothole or they get try and go up a curb and people yeah people go so yeah that's why they seem to be more dangerous than bicycles which are yeah i would imagine they've got quite well very diverse usership haven't they Mm. and a lot of that usership is quite young as well as being all sorts of ages like that's the meaning of diverse isn't it so i I imagine they're quite cool things in a way and there's there's probably quite a high mucking around quotient on them we had a go in a car park didn't we we? we yeah i was like chasing you yeah (laughs) so there's that's probably contributes to the accident proneness of them a bit like my commentary colleague david miller on a Brompton a few years ago when we were just finished commentating at the Tour de France, he found a BMX park right next to where we were working. Uh-oh. And he, he thought, I used to be a professional bikist. I'll go, I'll take my Brompton onto a BMX <laughs> oh my track. God. He came back about 30 seconds later, bleeding profusely oh. from almost yeah. every limb. That reminds me of when we, we used to go on holiday to a caravan in, in, in Bournemouth. It was on a little ridge, probably about sort of knee mid, mid-drift height. 
And um, my dad was on his bike and, and he went over the side shout, trying to do a trick. Trying to do a trick. And, and as he did it, he said, who's the daddy? <laughs> <laughs> and crashed and broke his arm. Oh, um, that's not oh, going to thank fun. you that's for sharing funny, that. Yeah. Something like yeah. that. But it, no, it, was, it was quite good fun. But yeah, the, yeah, the, the wheels is, is one of the issues. And also there is another theory. And again, these are just theories at this stage. But yeah. because they are illegal, private e-scooters, they are generally ridden in a way that feels illegal a bit um, yeah a bit like not that's not even necessarily the people using them it's not saying a certain demographic of thieves are using them it's no. just saying that when something is not allowed people kind of behave in a slightly different way you know mm. they might run traffic lights but because if you're stood, stood at traffic lights you're more likely to get pulled over yeah. because you're not you, get, like, you know you're not moving for example you get naughty kids on bikes as well, don't you? I mean, sort of... Uh, and in cars and as in well. Cars, yeah. yeah na- naughty people are everywhere. They're in government. <laughs> yeah. At the very highest level in this country as well. But without wishing to get in, in, in involved in that, that's interesting. But what I'd like to know is how many people on e-scooters know that they're not legal? What's the percentage of people who are actually aware that they're not legal? It's really hard, isn't it? Because if you're ever told off for doing something your first instances go, oh, I didn't know I can do that. Again, Sorry. Again, we come back to the highest level of government. <laughs> <laughs> to the best of my knowledge. Uh, but even being, you know, a naughty kid and they said, oh, you know you shouldn't do that. Oh, I didn't know. Sorry. <laughs> or whatever. And when it comes to e-scooters, the theme that I hear time and time again is, oh, people don't know they're illegal. But I'm pretty sure it's people going, oh, I didn't know it was illegal. I'm sorry, officer. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. So it's very hard to know. But it is easier to know that there's about 750,000 to a million private e-scooters in this country so wow. you know that's, that's they're, they're out the bag they're not going anywhere no, that's um, and true. i think that's why the government's probably considering how it can enable them because it's too far gone to rein them in and they're you know they're sensible they're fun when i was yeah, in Cannes, yeah. i was in a cafe with my wife on the south side and you know there's this pedestrianized sort of street while a filter with a bollard with two you know each end and and yeah people on bikes but it's just people on scooters just normal people just going about their daily business using small light powered vehicles and it was fine they weren't stressed about it so much there there was pedestrians walking and i saw a person on e-scooter go very close to a pedestrian overtaking the pedestrian was on their phone so it's kind of thing that could shake you up if you weren't expecting it but there's something there because the people had were just sort of so used to it it would just become part of the landscape there was no flinching going on it was just sort of we're all here we're all coexisting so who knows if the time will change that because when the first film came out and if you see where i'm going with this uh you don't know where i'm going with this um the first film cinema Mm -hmm. first ever first ever cinema Mm -hmm. was a a film of a train coming down the road everyone ran out there everyone ran out the cinema yeah maybe it's just like that yeah Kind of, th- I kind of understand. Um, the genie's definitely out of the bottle, but I'm intrigued by this idea of geo. What did you call it? Ge- the geo fencing. Geo fencing. So I understand the principles behind it, but I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure. I want to see that really. I don't know. It's that feels a bit controlling, doesn't it? Because yeah. say you manage to apply it to scooter riders, then cyclists. Mm. Do they get pedestrians and on I, our smartphones? Yeah. Do our smartphones start to vibrate and warn us that we've gone into... We've <laughs> Have little collars, a, couldn't we? Yeah, a little electric shock delivered. You know, you're in a territory you shouldn't be in. Elon Musk is listening to this going, oh, this is a good idea. We yeah, can, oh, we don't can get Musk this. Ideas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's, I mean, it's that kind of like, 
I mean, actually, quite a good example of that that strange uh, netherworld of public-private space and mm. are you allowed to do this or aren't you allowed to do this? I think quite a good example of right where we're sat now. We're on the north bank of the Thames Walk. We're on the Thames, as I say, in between London Bridge mm. and Cannon Street Railway Bridge. Um, and you're never quite sure who the land belongs to here, yeah. whether or not you're allowed to, I don't know, record a podcast here or yeah. you're going to get moved on. Can you cycle here? I'm not sure that's really, you know, yeah. and all that sort of thing. And occasionally you can't, the path isn't continuous because someone has just bought the right to the develop the, their property right yeah. up to the river and they keep the public out. Yeah. And um, I don't know if I'm stretching a point. Yeah, no, yeah. I think it's just right. Do you see what I'm getting at? Yeah, maybe if you were filming on the, one of the private well, bits, filming, it would they'd stop say, your, yeah. Uh, yeah. on your phone, it would just stop. The irony up by where the city hall is, you just about see it from here. That's all, more London is all private land. Yes. You know, you can, you know, it's sort of, it's probably a metaphor, really, isn't it? Because you've got the... I know they're moving now or have moved, but you've got the Mayor of London in a building which is was sort of, I think, funded privately in land that's privately owned yeah. that where the owners can control whether you're allowed to cycle there or allowed to take photos, whether or you're allowed to the mayor interview there. the mayor there, potentially outside yeah. the front. I remember we had to interview... I, back in Boris Johnson's era, I had to interview him inside yeah, because, yeah, because we you didn't have, have a permit outside. to film mm. Oh, exactly. So yeah. it's quite yeah, quite strange. And I saw something on Twitter the other day about the uh, Thames cycle path further up from where we are now, but up towards Greenwich and when you get to the O2 around there, you know, a lot of that is a mishmash of private and public mm. land and someone's taken it upon themselves to put a load of no cycling signs and I'm not yeah. sure whether they're doing that on behalf of a developer, uh, whether they're on behalf of, you know, just because they don't want cycling there and they're yeah. just one person with a printer. Yeah. That's quite difficult. And actually here, if there was e-scooters here, well, I didn't know, you know, there's a guy cycling. I cycled up here. Don't know whether I'm allowed to cycle here. You know, no, I, I was it's, doing ginger, ginger it's, Yeah, exactly. It's totally yeah, up to the private ginger. landowner mm. whether I can cycle here and it's in some terms and conditions. And you have to rely on the security guy over there who hasn't stopped us being here saying oh it's against the rules well you know that's a bit of a faith um but yeah the good way to often spot if it's private land is how nice the paving is yeah if the paving's nice it's normally privately owned generally it's private yeah Mm. Did you know it's uh, almost exactly two years since we recorded our podcast? No. Yeah, wow. yeah we launched we launched the first one on twenty fourth of April because I thought it must be around this time of year. What's 20, today's date? 20, 28th. 28th. Oh, okay, just yeah. over two years then. Two, two year years. anniversary, two year anniversary, friends. Yeah. Happy birthday to us. Sort of mad, isn't it? Really, yeah. it's nice that everything seems so strange in the still quite strange now. But the, you know, the first lockdown, it was really, you know, it was great. I just rang you up, didn't I, Laura, and said, "Oh, do you want to do a podcast?" And then rang Ned and to my amazement as a professional broadcaster he said yes um, <laughs> so I'm still here uh, and now he's, he's still stuck. here he's stuck with us yeah <laughs> not at all it's, um, it's, an, it's a great opportunity to plug my books <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, that Venn diagram crossover between yeah, the people yeah, who used to love one football of you. Come and on, the ones who love got to be travel. one of you I'm um, going to read your book sounds good that actually provides a, a, a reasonable kind of question doesn't it how much has changed how much has improved how far have we come in two years probably that is a question i should have given you a little bit of time to it's think about to before springing it? it on you it'd be quite interesting to go back and listen to those first couple mm. of episodes we were full of excitement about the potential yeah. revolution that was on we our were. yeah but i think we were also wise enough to understand that well i'd like to think we were that this isn't a given and it's not necessarily going to be mm. easy no well but have we made the progress we thought we'd make i just cycled um 
along Cycle Superhighway, Cycleway 2 now, I think it's called. And there was always a big gap between that one that goes from Stratford to Aldgate and then the one that kind of goes all the way east to west past Parliament Square. And they've just opened it in the last couple of days. It's sort of linked between the two sort of major cycleways and it's always been a bit of a hodgepodge before where, which way you go I mean in London so much has changed but I think outside of London it's a very very patchy picture I think is like that, within London oh, it's, hang on. Is that true? I don't know is it true yes yeah, is it? Okay. yeah I, I think so like I can you know and I'm clearly aware of this in the in the West Midlands that we're starting you know 10 or 15 years behind that's a real hindrance and it takes a lot of time to build a cohesive network check the flight paths before you book <laughs> this location. I think it changes depending on the wind, it does. doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Adam's um, just paused there because an aer- a loud aeroplane was going overhead, approaching City Airport from the west. Oh, is that what so it the, was? The, the, I was the, just the, wondering. Um, I see, I used to be obsessed with civil aviation when really? I was a kid. Yeah, it was a big passion of mine. Hold that thought, Adam. I will come back to it, yeah, the sure. point you were making. But when the wind is blowing from the east, which it has been, that's why it's been a bit chilly in London mm. the last few days, uh, they do approach City Airport from the west, so they fly in right <laughs> over the Thames and turn With a tailwind. Yeah. yeah. Did I ever tell you my story about the bike racks at City Airport? I'm sure. No, I don't know. No. I heard this. Well, you've got a... St- I'm sure I must have told this on the podcast. Well, if I did, apologies, you're about to hear it again. And if I haven't, I how this. could I have held this one back? The, you know, you're <laughs> saying you're the, you've got a street named after your dad in... Somerset. In Somerset. West Somerset, West yeah. Somerset. Um, I claim, I mean, it's not actually true, but I'm going to just claim it anyway, that the bike racks outside City Airport... Are called Ned. Should have, they should be called Ned's Bike Racks, and they should have a plaque next to it. Because I think I basically am the reason why they exist. <laughs> <laughs> One day, about 10 years ago, I was, and this is, this is obviously shameful because I would never do it now, but I had to go up to Glasgow, Edinburgh and back down in a day. Yeah. Um, and I flew. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have flown. I wouldn't, I wouldn't make that choice now. It's for work. <laughs> All I had to take with me is a, a, a little rucksack. And I live quite close to City Airport. I rode my bike there. <laughs> There's nowhere to chain my bike no. up. Amazing. So I chained it up to a lamppost right outside the sliding doors at the front Brilliant. of the City Airport. Make Terminal. a point. I went off. Went to Glasgow, came back in the evening. The bike was and gone. And the bike was gone. Yeah. And I, and I thought, Somewhat well, of a not, security no alert. No one's nicked it because, you know, it's the last place you're going to nick a, a bike. So I went to the security people and they went, is that your bike then, was it? And I went, yeah. And he said, well, we've impounded it. And I said, why? And they go, security risk. <laughs> what do you mean a security <laughs> risk? What, what, it's not an exploding bike? Or what are you talking about? It's a security risk. So what's the nature of the risk involved? He goes, well, it's just, don't ask. It's just a security risk, right? So I said, well, what have you done? Have you blown it up? You taken away and had it shot, and he goes, <laughs> and he goes, he goes. No, so we've impounded it in our warehouse. It's about two miles down the road, in in this part of East London. And I went, well, how am I going to get there? And I go, well, that's not my problem, mate. So I went all. I had a walk in the end. I walked oh all gosh. the way down to this warehouse. <laughs> I said, I said, I think you've got my bike. And by now I was in a foul mood. And I, I picked my bike up and I said, where's the lock? And he goes, we broke that. <gasps> and I went, right, okay. Anyway, I jumped on my bike, cycled home, sat at my desk when I got home, wrote a furious letter. I bet. Saying this, that and the other. And then saying I attached an invoice for replacement of the property you damaged, which if you don't pay, I'll sue you for (gasps) damaging my property like that. And then I billed them for another hundred quid for the sheer amount of distress it had caused me. (laughs) And if you you question that, I'll sue you as well. (laughs) Oh, my God. I was so angry. Anyway, they paid up. Wow. And the next time I went there, about a year later, there were bike racks no. outside. There we go. What were you saying anyway? I don't know now. 
as another aeroplane comes in to land at City Airport. Continuity. I was saying, you were saying outside of London. Oh yeah, I'm acutely aware outside of London and, and you know where I'm in the West Midlands, you know, building a network is hard and we are starting with somewhat of a, of a delay. You know, London started a lot earlier, but I feel like you can come to London now and you can largely get to where you need to by bike and, and you know... Between what's the point people are. Yeah, some people are. Which are the numbers we want, but but yeah. but visibly, tangibly, tangibly, yeah, people are. We're still in a, in other places that you know sometimes there's not even a pavement sometimes, and people aren't thinking about the routes and the connections and and even when this is something that's coming up in my um, work a lot is even when we're getting it right, i.e. you know we want to build stuff, we need to make sure we build the connections to the stuff right because if we spend all of our and that's what London's done quite badly and then quite well because i think quiet ways there's quite a lot of criticism about you know other than number one you know that they were kind of backstreet routes with no level of traffic filtering or anything yeah yeah, exactly so i think what often happens we were starting to build these really good high quality arterial routes and this is not just the west midlands i think you know other places doing them but even if we do that for the next 10 years continuously we're going to have to connect people to those routes because even if each city has five or eight of these big arterial routes, that still probably leaves, you know, 80% of the city's residents not being able to access them because they haven't got the safe routes to get to the, the places yeah. they need to, to do. So that's where I think London's done quite well. I think it went through a bit of a problem with the quiet ways. They obviously weren't perfect, but now, you know, there seems to be quite coherent routes that aren't just the big arterial routes. It seems to be getting better with the low traffic neighbourhoods, but also, you know, that will generally become a bigger and bigger network and still a long way to go. I think it's quite interesting, isn't it? You were just saying about in the Netherlands, they're building these big cycle, you know, yeah. literal cycle superhighways, like exactly. motorways for bikes. That's sort of what you do yeah. when you've done the cities. You kind of like start yeah. to and tie also, up. But also um, e-bikes have changed quite a lot as well. They've made sort of longer distance routes a lot more possible and for a lot more people. But yeah, maybe it is. Because I mean, the thing about sort of rural versus urban is that the urban, obviously the low hanging fruit is in urban areas where there's a lot of short trips. But actually, even in the countryside, like where I grew up, the sort of villages and towns are surrounded by hamlets and smaller settlements. And I was listening to um, Brian Deegan doing a presentation about his hometown, Harpenden, and um, talking about how with five modal filters they could make the entire town a low traffic neighborhood and then you know there's a there's 20 minutes to st albans on a main road and if you built a cycle lane there and it's like it's not always huge stuff actually and if you think about yeah, doesn't smaller, need to be expensive. yeah it doesn't need to be and actually you made me realize just how little because you think five five modal filters but yeah i mean that's what that's what he reckons that's the so. sort of the, the with the cost side often often it's quite daunting to say well we're not going to be able to do this area because we just can't afford to or, or whatever. But actually, if you've got the political will and the courage to, to do it, you know, I heard Brian also make a point that, you know, bollards are on their own affordable. But if you have to put them every four metres or every two metres, because if you don't put a bollard there, someone will park there or, or whatever, you, you end up with a whole city need or a whole town needing thousands of bollards whereas yeah. you could just yeah. put four yeah. on the way in yeah. and then you don't need any bollards yeah. <laughs> and, and that's obviously an extreme but it does show that if you if you've got the courage you can yeah cut down on the spend i think i underestimated quite how 
just hearing you talk there, Laura, about what they're doing in the Netherlands and, and also some examples from back here. How And this is one thing that might really have changed significantly in the two years that we've been doing this podcast. The impact that electric bikes are having now yeah. and will continue to have and the mm. speed at which they're changing yeah. our perception of what is possible and the accessing a different section of society. I yeah. don't think, to, you know, rewinding to two years ago, I don't think that w- was necessarily a given, was it? I don't think we'd any of us had understood quite how much of a paradigm shift they might bring about actually yeah i think there was a sort of inkling and i remember deloitte did a report just i think it was just before the pandemic talking about how there were sort of five major tech developments that were going to change the world and e-bikes was one of them but i think that was kind of one of the early sort of signs that you got from the mainstream that this was going to happen and then but the pandemic really accelerated that but yeah we're just way behind places like germany we sell like a couple of hundred thousand e-bikes a year and they're on something like a million but yeah it does seem to have accelerated it and it's really nice especially going out of london and cycling around you do see more people with e-bikes saw some people on the weekend with e-mountain bikes out in the sort of south downs Mm. area it's really nice for leisure but also yeah just you know it's going to eventually that will chip away at that very valid argument that you butt up against in this country Hills, the, the, the terror. Yeah, hills, and also, <laughs> you know, when you when you talk about car ownership, for example, you say, "Well, it's all right for you. You're in London. I need my car. Mm. I live in the country." Yeah. Well, I get that. The more that these networks potentially are rolled out, and the more mm. the e-bikes are sold, the less validity that argument yeah. has. Yeah, yeah. You know. I can't remember the exact stat, but I remember one of the first press briefings that Grant Shapps did, and it was a great bit of data they've been obviously given by a, by a civil servant who wanted to make the point, and that was that outside London, you know, the average car journey is still only something like 2.8 miles or something like that. So, you know, people, wherever you go, London's the extreme because, you know, lots of people don't own cars. The people that do own cars, you know, are still using them for short journeys. And that's the same as it is outside of London. You know, we're using our cars to pop to the shops. And while we don't have the walkable neighbourhoods, they're still not long car journeys. You know, they're not long by any stretch of the imagination. So you'll always get that but i think e-bikes really normalize it and make it feel like just take the people drive cars because they're easy they're there they don't require any thought i sometimes wouldn't ride my manual bike if you like my analog bicycle if i can't be bothered or i don't want to get changed or i don't want to be sweaty or whatever like that but when i'm going on you know just half a mile or a mile i'll just jump on the e-bike because i just know it's super super easy and yeah that's that's been a big difference to me and i think it's a great product isn't it if uh we just assume that all humans are inherently lazy myself included making it as easy as possible seems like a smart move i'm beginning to really enjoy sharing the road with e-bikists as well because i've just realized it's just like having a derny. A derny, exactly. So I just jump on the back. I, I must annoy the hell out of them. I've got no shame. I just jump on the back. Laura, you've come here on an e-bike. Yeah, it's a really upright one. I've had someone sort of sitting Use on my back. Di- and yeah. I'm quite, I was quite pleased, actually. Well, it gives I mean, you a was... minor aerodynamic advantage as well, <laughs> being on the front. It? Yeah, having someone on your on your back wheel is actually a slight advantage for you as yeah. well. So there you go. That's it's quite nice but, to um, help a fellow cyclist. I don't mind it. <laughs> what I have noticed in, in just a couple of years, because I've been to Paris quite a few times and I, I do mention it, and, and I mention Paris quite a lot because I think it's a city that's... Um, has, can I just ask for you, yeah. has Anne Hidalgo, is she no longer the mayor? No, she is, she, she is, is, yeah. Is she, did, they, did they have mayoral elections at the same time as the no, president? Oh, okay. No, no, so she, she did that thing where, you know, you say I'm going to be president but I'm not going to give up the job I'm doing, oh, okay, so you've got something to go back to. Right, okay. She was a presidential candidate in the first yeah, round. Yeah, she was, Fine, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, Paris is really interesting because some of it's not brilliant, it's definitely not pretty, 
but they've made a massive difference and they've shown that you can do it very, very quickly. And some of that's the infrastructure and then just talking about e-bikes and how quickly that can build you a cycling culture. I don't think we have the e-biking kind of casual culture in this country. Like the bike that Laura has, this sort of sit-up bike with a knee bike that's clearly for utility. Don't see that many of those. You know, often you, you see more e-cargo bikes potentially. But in Paris, what they did is they gave everybody the opportunity to, uh, I mentioned this before, but to borrow an e-bike for up to six months by paying... Six months? Yeah. They have to pay like a monthly subscription fee, but about 40 euros it was. And that included maintenance and, and a lock and things like okay. that. You got to use it for six months, 40 euros a month. So when the public transport messages, we had the same messages as us, you know, don't use public transport yeah. or whatever... One of my family members lives in Paris and, you know, she got an e-bike and, you know, you never, I just never had her down as someone who'd ever ride a bicycle for transport. And she did. And then at the six, the end of the six months, not only do you get a super cheap loan of a bike, you get 500 euro credit, basically a subsidy from the government to buy your own e-bike. So what you see in France is this really kind of casual e-cycling culture with lots of mums on like long tail cargo bikes with kids on the back and just lots of people just riding cargo uh, e-bikes and we don't have that here yet my suspicion is that the language and the discussion around cycling is a little bit less toxic and has been as a you oh, know, i don't know in paris the the motorist union took Anne hidalgo to to court when she closed the road along the seine i think in france yes generally but in paris it's still very much has same some of the same issues that i think the other car, cities would have yeah, yeah, yeah i think so. there's a lot of people yeah. who live outside of paris isn't it often driving in but i don't know yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they're the ones that want to keep it open. Yeah. Uh, what yeah. else have we yet to touch on? Do you remember that bit that you did um, from Paris when you were there? You were riding around. We never used that, did we? Did that we little. Not? No, we didn't use it. Did I send it we to could... you? Yeah, you did. Oh, well, uh, we let's... just haven't found a place to put what? it. So what? now we're talking about what? Paris. Yeah, Maybe and we it's could a pod pop with it. that portfolio. Maybe we could we pop that in because it seemed a shame not to use it. Yeah. All right. This is me in Paris. I can't remember what I said. All right. I'm in Paris, and it's about seven o'clock in the evening just had dinner just had a, a work meeting vaguely kind of ended up in paris by accident but that's a that's another story anyway it's nice to be here i haven't been here since um i haven't been here since the tour de france finished here in 2019 and then covid changed everything didn't it but um i'm back again and quite a lot's changed i mean the mayor in in paris has really put in some measures here to promote cycling specifically and I'm on a Valib now, one of the higher bikes, just about to cross the River Seine with Notre Dame to my right, which is still being reconstructed. And I've, because I've had a few meetings and bits and pieces to do, I've been all over Paris today, um, this afternoon, and I've noticed how many segregated cycle lanes there are. Almost every street, and there are many one-way streets in Paris for cars, have now been authorised sort of as two-way exclusively for cycles whoops oh, just got some cobbles um which is just great you know so basically there's not a street it seemingly in central paris there's not a street you can't go down as a cyclist and there are loads of streets you can't go down uh, if you're driving a car so um so it's really good and the rue de rivoli is obviously the kind of crowning centerpiece of that the big street with all the shops on it and that's basically two-thirds of it have been given over now exclusively to bikes. And 
there are lots and lots and lots and lots of people on bikes. Tourism hasn't really come back to Paris yet because of COVID. And so these people are Parisians. And um, yeah, I think they're really showing the way forward. So I've just gone through uh, the Marais and I'm heading for the Gare du Nord actually to catch my Eurostar home. And uh, it's a lovely evening here in Paris. Honestly, it's a remarkable shift that's happened and it uh, does show the way forward because Paris honestly was not always like this. I've been coming here for 20 years on an annual basis and uh, cars have dominated this city just like many others uh, in the world. And it just shows with a bit of political will what can be done um, and with the buy-in from the population. I think they might be reaching that kind of point of uh, what's the phrase? Critical mass. Kind of holy grail of cycling activists. Feels like that anyway. Certainly tonight. I'm alright. It's a nice evening. Um, but it's a perfectly ordinary evening. It's just a Monday evening. People going about their business. And uh, so also today, the uh, Paris wide, the 30 kilometer an hour speed limit was introduced. I must admit, I don't see too much evidence of that being strictly adhered to because what cars there are here, and believe me, there are still plenty, don't worry. Um, a lot of the drivers are, are, are exceeding that speed limit still. So incrementally, bit by bit, but the pace of change here in Paris is pretty fast, I have to say. And just to reinforce this point, because I'm really looking out for it now, I mean, every street in central Paris is accessible in both directions for cyclists. Really is remarkable. Just stopping at a red light here. I also noticed that um, actually on the train heading into the Gare du Nord from the airport this morning when I flew in, I noticed that uh, in the suburbs as well, outside the centre, there are special streets called, I think they're called Route de Vélo, and um, there are signs on these streets, repeated at kind of 50 metre, 100 metre intervals, that say, this is a street in which, uh, if you are driving a car, it is uh, not allowed to overtake a cyclist, you must wait. Which is a, that's a, well, it's a thing I've not seen before anywhere in the world. That's pretty amazing too. Big fan of this, as you might have guessed. Then again, I like France, don't I? Well, I'm now very close to the Gare du Nord and I'm on a segregated cycle lane with a curb alongside me, just being overtaken. Um, and on the road itself, there are three, two lanes of traffic, series of red lights that are constantly stopping the uh, motorised traffic. But every time we go over a, a crossing, a side street, uh, we have to make way, give way for pedestrians at zebra crossings, clearly. Uh, but there's priority for this cycle lane. In other words, the bikes fly through and the cars don't. I mean, they really don't. And it's, no, it's not congested. There's not a big traffic jam of cars, but it really would, you know, if you were sitting in a car looking at the way that the cyclists are making progress here, you'd think twice about your choices uh, because they're being prioritised. I like Paris. I'm a big fan of Paris. And I've just come back from, talking about your travels, I've come back from a little writing research trip to Belgium and France. And it's quite interesting noticing the different um, cycling cultures in the two different countries because they are neighbours and in some ways they are 
both respectively the heartland of road racing, which is obviously what interests me, especially Belgium. It's just crazy for it. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I was actually the first port of call when I went over the, the channel was to Lille. And um, I was very impressed with their cycle hire scheme there. It was really easy to use because they can be a bit off-puttingly complex, can't yeah. they, when you first get there and you kind of like, it's always down. Brussels got one and it's awful. The one in Brussels is pre-Vilib in Paris. Oh, so right. the technology is, you know, really 15 years, yeah. like 10, Maybe 15 years old. Newer. Now, so. Is your Lille one newer? Yeah, it must be. Yeah, it, it, it's very new and very, very straightforward. New. And I contrasted that with, I had quite a quick... When I was travelling from Belgium down to southwest France, I had to just pass through Paris. I had to get from the Gare du Nord to Montparnasse. Damn it, I wish I'd had my Brompton with me, my folding bike, because oh, that would have yeah. been the ultimate way of getting there. But I had a big old heavy suitcase as well, so I had to get the Metro, which is fine. I like the Metro. But I, was, I hadn't taken the Metro for a, f- a while, and I was stunned to realise that you still have to queue. Unless you have their, their effectively their Oyster card, I can't yeah. remember what it's called. You have to queue. Oh, for tickets. To get it's a paper, paper ticket. Just and like, they yeah. get you the carnets. The carnet of 10 yeah. or the individual journey of one. And it's still those little card, yeah. you know, um, chewing gum sized yeah. tickets. And they, they're too small to fit anywhere in a wallet, so you just lose them. And I, I was getting really stressed because the queue I was in to use the machine to buy that ticket was about took me 15 minutes to get to the front and I thought that's strange for a joined up city like Paris not to have a better system of using their public transport but um, yes yes yeah. oh, well that is yeah, London's annoying. brilliant though I think we're spoiled um, here I think yeah yes. I remember being in New York and, and the signage like how you get or where you need to be is just awful and it kind of makes you realise actually in London it's just easy easy yeah and using transport for London obviously with it the, with the just swiping in and swiping out with your contactless card is, is so two things like, it's one it's brilliant Two, it's quite sneaky, isn't it? Because I think I've mentioned this before. You never have any idea how much you're spending because yeah. it doesn't say. Yeah, it's true. It yeah. doesn't tell you. It just says gone. And it doesn't say we've just debited £5.80 <laughs> to come from zone three into zone one or whatever it is. Because I'm just guessing because I don't know how much it is. Yeah. Um, but I always find that a really um, quite compelling when you're talking to Londoners about, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't cycle in London. I'd say, check how much you're spending on your thing. And they go, oh, yeah, I never thought about that. Mm. All right, so that's just about it from episode whatever it is. Yeah. Two days on. Um, I'm going to ask as a special treat for our listeners, I'm going to ask Laura to read the script that closes the show. <laughs> You've been listening to Streets Ahead. Our editor has been Claire Mansell. Let us know what you think at Pod Streets Ahead, rate and review us, and share the podcast with anyone you think might enjoy it. Goodbye. 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 A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.